Okay, I think we're rolling. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, of course. I am super excited to talk to you because you were the main writer on several of our favorite episodes. I know my co-host Aww. Molly is always talking about smart power. She loves Serena Joy. So that was just like uh-huh. that was just like a love letter to her. Um, uh, thank you so then, much. And then I'm a huge Cherry Jones fan. Um and have a complex, you know, relationship with my own mother. So baggage just like hit me in all of my feels. <laughs> totally. Um, um, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Of course. And then we have just watched Household, um, and we were super excited. Uh, Maloney Watch had barely gotten started, and we got him right away this season. Um, yep. And we were really excited to see you know, the Waterfords getting into Washington and starting to really delve into what makes Gilead tick. Um, And then I have some questions about this episode and sort of your writing in general. But first, I just wanted to say thank you for the scene where Aunt Lydia says, I'm pumped. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I was going to say, Serena Joy is Molly's problematic fave. Aunt Lydia is my problematic fave. and again, just probably my favorite scene in the whole show was the one with her in June putting on um, what we are referring to as the oppression dicky. Um, yes, that's a great term for it. Oh my gosh, I was just slayed by that scene. It was so beautiful. Um, so yeah, thanks for your work in creating this awesome show. Yeah, and I have some some observations and some questions, so let's dig into those. Um, I don't know... Let me just check on the time. Do you have a a hard stop that I should be mindful of? Um, I should probably end by about 3.30. Okay. Um, That's my hard stop as well. Just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to keep you. Yeah. Okay. So um, something that I noticed in the household episode particularly is we see June and Rita getting reunited. And very different tone with them then I think even in season two where I think they're working together more closely and, you know, we know they're both kind of working with the resistance, um, these sign-offs from Gilead, um, and I'm thinking in particular of when the Winslow's Martha is taking them to their bedrooms, um, and I can't remember what the evening sign-off is, but there's so much feeling behind the words, uh, whereas in previous seasons I kind of felt like, you know, everybody was going along to get along, but it feels like there's a deeper emotional connection to the language of Gilead, even with the people who aren't fans. So I'm yeah. wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and, and how you as writers um, kind of seed that through. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, something that um, writing for Gilead, when you have these like handful of phrases like blessed be the fruit or, you know, blessed day, blessed evening. Um, you you have those at your disposal. And then I think you're totally right. You can really shade them to either mean a ton. You know, they can mean I love you. They can mean be careful. Um, they can also be very rote and sort of formulaic and, and reestablish a hierarchy or a barrier. Um, and I think that with June and Rita, you know, June, this whole episode is really looking for 
a partner and an ally. Um, she's really looking for somebody who can help her out. And, you know, she tries her best with Serena. She tries with the Swiss. She tries with Nick. Um, and I think she's, you know, feeling Rita out a little bit, but I think she knows that, like, the the level of difficulty of the maneuvers she's going to be asked to execute are, like, not necessarily something Rita is going to be the person for. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's more using Rita, I think, to take the temperature of Serena. So sort of using these these phrases and these little things to kind of, we sort of, you know, reestablish a relationship with Rita and then mm-hmm. in the hopes that she can say to Rita, like, what is Serena's deal? Like <laughs> the question here. on everybody's mind, honestly. <laughs> Help me out, Jan. <laughs> um, I would also love to hear about how as you were breaking the story and you came up with this idea where, you know, the Waterfords are going to Washington. And um, the way that you incorporated the imagery of Washington, D.C. as we know it and altered it as this sort of projection of, like, what would it be like if Gilead, you know, took up this seat of power um, and sort of why some of those alterations happened. I mean, specifically, the biggest ones, I think, are the Washington Memorial is now a cross. And then, of course, the Lincoln Memorial has been destroyed um, so I'd love to hear about sort of how you all conceived of that and, and sort of what that looked like in terms of figuring out how to execute it. Because I know that you all were able to shoot on the mall. Um, yes. And I'm sure that was a very complicated process to negotiate. It was um, a very complicated process, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, the idea to go to D.C. came from Bruce, um, I think, you know, for all of season three, he was interested in expanding, um, sort of expanding the world. He's always looking at sort of what are the the Gilead stories that we haven't told yet. And so very early on, before we knew it would be in episode six, before we knew I would be writing episode six, um, we had talked about like, what if there's a DC trip? Um, mm-hmm. And we all been like, oh, cool, that'd be cool. Um, and it was just sort of in the air. And then as it became a little more nailed down and we knew, okay, this is roughly when it's going to happen. And this is, you know, oh, and cool, and I'll be writing it. Um, we talked a little more about what we might like to see there. Um, you know, in earlier, like, some of some of what we ended up focusing on just became logistic, which is we knew we wanted to have the Washington Monument cross. Um, that was just sort of a, an iconic moment. Um, I, I think to say Gilead is the new nation, you know, that this mm-hmm. is not – this is not a society that is run on the principles of a bunch of 18th century deist intellectuals. Like mm-hmm. this is a, you know, theocratic regime. This, the most important thing is, is um, this religious symbolism. Um, and then once we were at the Washington Monument, you know, you have the Lincoln Memorial right behind you. You have the reflecting pool. You have this very iconic um, space where so many powerful speeches have been made um, that we were like, well, okay, once we're there, you know, we're going to be there to see the, cro- the cross. What else can we do? What else can we play with? How else can we show Gilead's approach to history? Um, and I think something we, we thought about was communicating that Gilead believes Gilead will be around forever. You know, mm-hmm. Gilead invested the time in changing the monuments. Gilead went out and got the hammers to 
smash Lincoln. You know, they don't see themselves as a temporary thing. Um, and we wanted that sort of the weight of that to land on June as well. I'm like, I'm legitimately like getting goosebumps listening to you say that. It's so terrifying. <laughs> it's very terrifying. It's very terrifying. Um, no, and it, I think it's especially terrifying just because so much of what I've experienced in my life on the right wing, it is very invested in the sort of founding father's narrative. And so to have these sort of, you know, bad actors with all this power who are a completely different flavor. Um, yeah of the people that I'm kind of used to thinking of as the right wing is just wild. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that um, Gilead, you know, they name themselves Gilead. Um, They're, they really are taking their legacy and their inspiration from the Bible far more than from, you know, founding fathers text. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a sort of, you know, civic religion, um, kind of let's all wear three cornered hats and like, you know, <laughs> pretend to be those guys. Like it's really, like that's just not who they um, see as their forebearers. Um, and that was something sort of fascinating and troubling to think about is like, what would Washington DC be like if you didn't have um, this political institutional legacy um, mm-hmm. behind it? Um, yeah. And it was, I, I wasn't there for filming. Like it was definitely a logistical challenge and, you know, we had one day, basically to get yeah. all of the DC stuff. And we would have loved to have been, I mean, I would have loved to have been there for a week and I would have loved to have filmed <laughs> all over the city. Like it would have been amazing. Um, but what we could swing was one day and we tried to yeah. get as much, as much as we could out of that one day. Um, and so to circle back again, just really quickly to the Lincoln Memorial. So from your perspective as the writer, um, cause they don't get into it in the episode, but uh, what happened there? So you, you, you know, Gilead deliberately destroyed the Lincoln Memorial, or yeah. do you feel like it was accidental? I think it was deliberate. I mean, we we didn't talk about it uh, specifically in the room, so it's totally possible that if Bruce listens to this, he'll be like, what? You're so wrong. That's not <laughs> at all the answer. And I'll be like, hi, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. <laughs> um, but um, in my head, it was a deliberate, it was a deliberate act of destruction, um, mm-hmm. and it was left partially destroyed to remind people that something had been there and that something had been conquered. Um, I think a lot of times with Gilead, they wipe away all the evidence, you know, they take away mm-hmm. the signs and they, you know, get rid of the malls and, and they sort of, you know, try to make it seem like those things were never there. So I think for them to leave something partially destroyed, that's on purpose. Like they, mm-hmm. they had the ability to, you know, wreck it into smithereens. Um, and chose not to as a kind of a warning um, to everybody else of like, this is what we can do. We can destroy you. We could destroy Abraham Lincoln. We could destroy you. Yeah. And uh, I love to get into this theme of destruction and the much more extreme restrictions that we see in Washington, not just for handmaids. I think it applied across all of the women, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we're seeing for the first time, um, you know, this image that we've seen before, there's a 1986 uh, Seal Books edition of The Handmaid's Tale of a woman with rings through her lips. And yep. I'm I'm curious, sort of, what's the thinking behind things being so strict in Washington? And is Boston an outlier in terms of being a bit more lax? I mean, we've kind of seen that Commander Waterford plays fast and loose with a lot of the rules, and it's a hotbed of the resistance. Um 
so I'm curious if when and if there's spoilers here, you know, don't don't spoil anything, but uh, you know, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, just I'm curious, you know, is is Boston the exception um or is Boston the rule? Um yeah, we were going for the idea that June has been feeling like she lives in the most oppressive place in the world and she is at, you know, a 10 on the scale of zero to oppressive. And then mm-hmm. she gets to DC and she's like, I was at a five. I never knew. Like, oh my God. Yeah. You know, it, it gets, it can get worse, um, which hadn't been a possibility for her. And the, exactly that Boston is sort of the wild west and it's mm-hmm. a little bit removed from the capital and um, people, you know, there is a little more freedom for playing. Um, and so some of the, um, things that June's gotten away with, whether at Waterford's house or whether at Lawrence's house, um, are because they're slightly off the radar, they're, you know, farther north. Um, and for her to realize, like, oh, my God, it it could get worse. It has gotten worse. And that this is a glimpse of a potential future. Um, but mm-hmm. I think she had felt like, oh, maybe the futures available to me are things get better and it gets, you know, easier and, you know, I can have more mobility. And what she's realizing is like, that's one version, but Mm -hmm. a different version is, you know, all this chatting that you're doing on, you know, when you go to loaves and fishes, well, you can't chat if you can't open your mouth, Mm -hmm. you know, like you can't write, you can't chat. Like Mm -hmm. you have, you have freedoms you didn't realize you had and what Mm -hmm. would it be like if those were taken away? And the other question I have is, what is it that makes Gilead so powerful in the world of international politics? Because we've seen them interact with Mexico, we've seen them interact with Canada, and now we're seeing them interact with, you know, this sort of diplomatic cadre from Switzerland. Um, what is it about Gilead? What do they have? Because obviously, you know, they've, they've cut off a lot of sort of what the privileges of being America would have been. Um, and, you know, obviously we don't know quite so well, you know, what the what the full global picture is, but mm-hmm. why are people engaging with Gilead when they're engaging in so much barbarism against their citizens? Totally. Uh, great question. Um, I think there are two reasons, um, sort of a carrot reason and a stick reason. Um, I think the carrot reason is Gilead is actually doing a pretty good job of dealing with the fertility crisis. Like that's actually that's come up on the podcast like I think a couple like, episodes ago. I was like, um, Gilead's kind of working great. Yeah, like like they have babies, you know, like mm-hmm. how they got them is not good. But um, so I think that for some countries, you know, they're willing to overlook the practices because they're kind of like, I don't know, you guys, you're doing something right because you know you have babies and we don't. Um, and then I think the stick reason is that in the the revolution um in the crusades where where the people who now run gilead took over um i do not think that that we went through all of the weaponry that the current united states of america has right like Mm -hmm. we have a bunch of nuclear weapons but when we are in gilead it doesn't seem like we're dealing with you know the ramifications of all those nuclear weapons having gone off so Mm -hmm. they're somewhere um, the Gilead people got the keys to them, you know, and they've got the passcodes. And I think mm-hmm. everybody who enters into a negotiation with Gilead knows that, like, Gilead got grandfathered in 
all mm-hmm. of the giant terrifying weapons that, you know, the United States had. Um, yeah, and you don't want to be the person who fumbles the nuclear football. Exactly, exactly. And I think especially in a world with, you know, a fertility crisis, I think other countries are probably pretty skittish about getting involved in military action. So, mm-hmm. you know, when Gilead's like, hey, we want our baby back, um, they don't necessarily have a particularly strong legal case, but I feel like I know why, you know, Canada isn't telling them just like to go jump in a lake, you know, mm-hmm. that, that they have to. Well, and I mean, they're, them. you know, they're motivated by faith and religion and not reason. Um, mm-hmm. And that combined with uh, nuclear weapons, that's a pretty potent cocktail. Yeah, like, I feel like you hear what that person has to say, you know? Yeah. You're like, okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Gotta hear both sides. Yeah, they're like, I have seen Jesus and I have nuclear weapons. You're like, I'll hear yeah. you out. Awesome, great. <laughs> um, so this may be the subject of an upcoming flashback. If so, we don't have to get into it. But I am so curious about what Fred did before Gilead, because we saw him you know, supporting Serena on her book tour in some capacity, you know, I I was never totally clear on, is he a professional in the media or is he just there as, you know, supportive husband? Um, But he, you know, takes like a fish to water to, you know, uh, engineering this entire, you know, get baby Nicole back campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I will try to be spoiler free, but um, I think about in, in my head and I, I feel like I can't remember if this is in the book or if this is just like room canon, but um, I feel like we always talk about Fred as as kind of a brand strategist, okay, um, and that he was just really good at figuring out how to do sort of brand storytelling, and so that mm-hmm. when he has, you know, Gilead to basically create visual content around, like he's so happy. Like you're, Fishwater is exactly right. Like he would mm-hmm. make you know, commercials for Gilead all day long if he could. I'm just, I'm really enjoying that visual for some reason. Yeah, like I, th- I think he wants to be like a Gilead influencer. Like I think he's really into it. Um, oh my gosh, I can't wait to unsubscribe to his Instagram. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I think like he's, you know, it's weird because we're we're sort of getting to see him be good at his job. And I think there are parts of his job he's not good at, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't know how good he is at like commanding, right? you know, per, per se, <laughs> but I think he's very good at like, you know, making, making visual content that tells a persuasive story. And he's good at branding his commanding. Super good at branding his commanding, which maybe is all you need to be. Um, so did you all, as you were figuring out that you wanted to create this couple in the Winslows who are kind of living the Gilead and dream in Washington, D.C., um, did you have a sense of who you wanted to play them? Because we are thrilled to see Christopher Maloney and also Elizabeth Reeser, um, playing these characters. I mean, there was, there was shrieking. Yeah, they were, when we watched the episode. I was so excited. It was so fun to to cast them. It was so great to to be on set and to meet them. Um, they were amazing. Um, they did a great job. I think I think for us, it started more as a as a type than like a particular mm-hmm. person. But it just we really wanted them to feel like just the best mom and dad. Mm-hmm. You know, like just well, a and really yeah. 
it's what's so like, terrifying about them because in, as we talked through this episode, we were like, we kept expecting the moment of like, you know, them, them yelling at the kids or doing something abusive, but they're raising a family in a really exemplary way. Totally. Um, I'm just like, oh my God. Totally. Totally. And that was really just the vibe that we were going for is we, we wanted like a, you know, like a, a strong and an upright dad, but who was also like would play, you know, dolls with you and like yeah. wasn't so hung up on his masculinity that he couldn't mm-hmm. like, you know, hang out and have a tea party. Um, and that we wanted a, a warm mom, but like there's a there's a preciousness that I think some of the Gilead moms have who are the wives because the children are so scarce that mm-hmm. they kind of have that like super helicoptery, you know, oh my God this baby was so hard to get. I'm so terrified. And there's a, there's kind of a looseness um, to Mrs. Winslow where she's like, ah, I got five kids. Like you just can't. No, I mean, she literally just hands a baby to Serena as like, totally. you know, Oh, can I like, get you a drink? Here's a baby. Exactly. Like you just can't be that obsessive about your kids when you have five of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that kind of um, warmth and ease was something that we really wanted that character to have, which I think, again, when you think of sort of like your ideal mom, you want her to be like warm and loving, but you also don't want her to be like too uptight, you know, that like she can kind of- Yeah, well, and it's like, it's a very, it's a lived in family. I think we we called out the detail of, you know, when um, Tamara is taking June and Rita to their room, she, you know, picks up a toy or a a shoe on the staircase. you know, totally. they live in this mansion, but they're really living in it. Totally. And and that was something, again, that we wanted. You know, if, if DC is, if the thing about DC is it makes June realize that she thought she was at a 10 and she's at a 5, that all aspects of the episode reflect that. So the the control is heightened and the oppression is heightened mm-hmm. um, and the and the, you know, violence against women is heightened, but also the sort of cult of the family and the beauty and the warmth and the love are also heightened that we're Mm -hmm. we're turning up all of the dials at the same time yeah i mean if you've removed just like every avenue to conflict i mean that's the natural end point right yeah you know um nobody's running off with their kids yeah exactly it's totally it's great um okay so we're getting close to the end here i have a couple more questions we're just curious, um, in your mind, a uh, little self-eval here, what do you think are the hallmarks of a Dorothy Fortenberry episode? And by the way, I love your name. Um, Ooh, thank you. I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen a photo of you, but I want you to know that whenever I think of you, I think of the end card on Amy Sherman Palladino's production company, the um, oh, that's Dorothy Parker that's drink here. Happening. Yeah, so in my mind, you're like a six-figure drawing of Dorothy Parker looking fabulous, so... Perfect. You know, keep it. Um, File that yeah. away. <laughs> I, I I have achieved what I believe is the ideal level of fame, which is that I have an IMDb page, but the picture is only other people. Um, oh, beautiful! And you can't see me. It's like a group photo in which I am invisible, and I was like, yes, this is, <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> where I want to be. Is like I I am not seeable, but yet like you can read my credits. Um, uh, anyway, um, you had asked me a real question and I got distracted by thinking. Of That's okay. Just what, what makes oh, my episode. an episode a Dorothy episode? Um, ooh, uh, you know, I do think I try to find, uh, some sense of humor in there somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, 
a laugh a minute kind of a show. Oh, um, really? Yeah, we get a lot of <laughs> iTunes reviews that are very yeah, critical of us for trying to make it that. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's somewhat sad. Um, but I think I try to find, you know, some sort of humor in the scenario or the people. Um, sometimes it's, you know, a joke one character tells another in the scene that's, that's meant to be humorous. And sometimes it's just a, a moment of, like, you know, Lydia saying she's pumped. Like Aunt Lydia saying she's pumped. Like she's not trying to make a joke, but like, you know, June yeah. can't believe she's hearing it. Um, so I think I think that's something that I I always try to get in there somewhere. And then I think I my background before I did television is I spent ten years as a playwright. Um, I know I saw you had a play at Actors Theater of Louisville, and I yeah, went to theater I school in Dayton, Ohio, and I was like, oh my god, oh, amazing, amazing, yeah, he's living so, my alternate life. it's pretty fun it's pretty fun it's a pretty fun life um so uh i think the other thing that i'd love to do and i get a chance to do in handmaid's tale is just to have you know two person scenes where you really just put two people in a room and let them talk to each other and that that was that was my observation about the two-hander with june and serena at the memorial i was like oh my god it's a one-act play yeah, exactly. or a ten-minute, you know, if the actor totally. theater of Louisville comparison. Totally, that's and that's my that's my that's my dream thing to do, and I love that I get to do it. So whether that's like, you know, June and Luke in season one, where they're like across the table and they're like, are we gonna hook up or are we not gonna, hook? you know, like that's mm-hmm. a that's a two-hander. Um, whether it's you know Serena and Mark Tuello, and they're kind of like, are you gonna be treasonous or not <sighs> be treasonous? So steamy. You know, yeah, that's that's a two-hander. Um, June and her mom, you know, like they're. they're I was gonna say, I mean, because that that wound up being like that was almost a two, like a, a full-length two-hander because totally. you had so many beautiful scenes between them. It's a, it's a relationship over time, and then I think with this, it's it's Serena and June, you know, trying to sort of. I feel like this is an episode where they're trying to make their relationship work, and then at the end mm-hmm. they just break up. Like they're like, we we cannot actually be in a relationship together. Yeah, um, it was oh, it was brilliant and vicious. So. Thank you. Um, Thank I was you. happy so. to see the hate come back. Yeah. Um, I yeah. feel like oh, finally, like this is stasis somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's that's something that I'll I'll always want to do. You know, when I'm writing mm-hmm. a script, is be like, what if I just had two people and they talked for 25 pages, um, yeah. and and I get a chance in Handmaid's probably more than I would on any other TV show, which is sure. very fun for me. Okay, so we have one minute left. I'm going to combine the final two questions that we've asked every writer into our lightning round. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about self-care and chick flicks we can watch that are like the opposite of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, so we would love for you to tell our listeners what's your personal favorite form of self-care that you use to wind down and what's your favorite chick flick if you have one? Um, oh, my gosh. And- uh I, self-care, I am I am terrible at, um, but I we do our laundry outside on a line, and like <gasps> laundry up is very meditative for me. And I really that's just so gilly out of you. It so is. I know it's like sunny, <laughs> and there's like a wisteria vine, so it makes your clothes smell good. Um, yeah, you can't look at your phone while you're hanging your laundry up. Um, so like that's like a little a little weird um, outside Gilead uh, form of self-care. Um, and then I love the show The Bold Type. Um, okay. 
it's great. It's it's women friends living in the real world, um, and it's it is my anti Gilead. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dorothy. It was so great to get to talk to you. Thank and you. I am very amped to see what comes next in this season. I think we watched through like episode eight and I'm just like, what? Ah. <laughs> so Amazing. very excited. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for this and all of the seasons. And I hope that you're having a well-deserved rest now that thank things you. are out the door. Thank you. I am. Thank you so much for paying so much attention to this show. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like wild how it's taken over our lives. Like people that I don't even, you know, I'm sure you get this writing for TV, but like people that I work with in my day job are like, oh my God, you're the, you're the podcast lady. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Please don't tell everyone how much I swear. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. Have a great week. You too. Bye-bye.